Bonnie's take your seat once again. Please turn in your copy of God's Holy Word to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 23. Tonight we'll consider uh, verse 23 down to the end of the text. But uh, as we continue our doctrinal series on the doctrine of public worship, we know that we've been in a series, a sub-series there on the Lord's Supper. Last time we considered the need for preparation before we come to the Supper, and this time building on that sermon, we come to consider the frequency of the Supper. How do we determine how often we take the Supper? And so that's going to be our consideration this afternoon. Lord willing, we will have one more sermon on the Lord's Supper, and uh, then we will um, move on from there. So with that then, to set the, uh, the Word of God before you, let's hear the words of Christ, uh, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23, to the end of the chapter. Hear now the Word of God. For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he brake it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye, as oft as ye drink it, in remembrance of me. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves... We should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord, that we should not be condemned with the world. Wherefore, my brethren, when ye come together to eat, tarry one for another. And if any man hunger, let him eat at home, that ye come not together unto condemnation. And the rest will I set in order when I come. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray for the preaching. O Lord, our God, we come to often very difficult subjects in the Word of God. And we confess, Father, that the issue is not your Word, for your Word is perfect, your Word is truth, your Word is plain. And so, Father, we confess that the issue is ourselves. And the issue is even this very man who comes to preach. And so we pray, Father, that you would overshadow the man's sinfulness, that you would give him the mind of Christ as he preaches, that he would not preach himself, but instead would preach Jesus and what Jesus would have for us all. Help the minister uh, preach by the power of the Spirit and help those who will hear this word receive the word of God with that same Spirit, that we may be one as you and uh, the Son are one in our understanding of the things of God. Bless your people now as they hear this word, and we pray that Christ would be glorified ultimately that we would come to take the Lord's Supper in a manner worthy of our Savior who has suffered so well for us. And so, Father, we pray in the preaching of the word that you would let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, a controversy in the church these days concerns the frequency of communion. 
The issue has recently arisen, and this is actually a fairly recent controversy in the history of Presbyterian and Reformed churches, but an issue has arisen recently from those who are dogmatic that the supper be observed weekly. They say it must be observed weekly, whereas the understanding of the Bible and our confession of faith as Presbyterians is that the frequency of the supper's administration is a circumstance of worship. Yet in many contemporary Reformed churches, we find men that are adamant for weekly observance. Men like Michael Horton and Keith Matheson have made alarming statements, statements that say without the Lord's Supper, a worship service is incomplete. What we do now, in other words, is deficient and not effectual. We are not having the full effect of corporate worship, and that is something that is alarming in the extreme and has caused great distress in the church of Jesus Christ. But we will find that the scripture does not prescribe a fixed frequency for the sacrament. That is, every church must observe the sacrament exactly this many times in the year. In fact, we must say, the danger is, to say so is to add to the word of God, where God has not spoken. And actually, then you find the danger, which is that we must not add anything to the word of God. Instead, what we must understand is that there are general rules in the Bible that determine the frequency of the Lord's Supper. And Jesus Christ expects elders to apply those rules to the particular congregation he has entrusted to them. So the theme today is to consider the rules in the word that determine the frequency of the supper. I especially want to preach this because many come to congregations like ours, which has a more um, historic, I'm not going to say traditional understanding, but a more historic understanding, and they are actually very perplexed and they're actually very disturbed by the fact that we don't celebrate the supper weekly. And this is preached so that you might understand why we as a session have decided on quarterly observance in this congregation. And young people, you would grow up understanding the principles that determine frequency. Our desire here, because this is the pastoral concern, right? People come and they say, it's like I'm being starved of grace. But instead, what we want to see here is that uh, when we come to the table, we are meant to feast on fat things that our soul is fattened and not diminished, that we would not be weakened by the supper, but we would truly feast on fat things. And the fatness of the supper carries us, not just communion to communion, but into eternity. It is a very high view of the Lord's Supper that we have. And it's not that we need to just take it every week. We must do so in a manner appropriate to the observation of it. So with that, to uh, introduce our theme and our need I want to divide our sermon into three heads. The first is that general rules of the word determine our frequency. Second is to consider those general rules. And third is to apply those general rules to this congregation in this time and this place. So first, general rules determine frequency. Uh, Simply note the scriptural basis for frequency in our text. Verse 25 says, as oft as ye drink it. And verse 26 says, as often as ye eat this bread. So boys and girls, a question would be to you, what frequency does the Lord give you in this text? Simply, as often as you do it. 
right? In the Greek language, it is whenever you do this, whenever you do this, do these things. And strangely, and maybe this has been you or maybe you've heard this, I have had more than one person jumble this up in their minds. And they have come to me and said, Pastor, the text says, Jesus says, do this often. No, what the text says is as often as you do this. It's not prescribing a frequency, not in the Greek or the English. The rule is simply, whenever you do this, do it in the way I have prescribed. And so the better, um, and again, I'm talking about those who are adamant that it must be weekly, not those with a preference. But those who require a weekly frequency then cannot use this text, and they will usually leave this text and go to the book of Acts. And they will say, whenever Luke mentions the breaking of bread, the Lord's Supper is being observed. For instance, in Acts 2.42, And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. They say this has to do with the Lord's Supper. Maybe it is, maybe it's not, but there's no frequency here, right? Then they go down four verses to Acts 2.46, and that's where they'll try to establish frequency. Uh, Children, listen carefully to this text. And I want you to think on the frequency. And they, continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. If breaking bread is the Lord's Supper and there is a worship service here, boys and girls, what's the frequency of communion? Daily. Daily. So unless you want to also dictate daily worship services, you cannot use this text either. But the context really is not the Lord's Supper. It seems to be a fellowship meal. Breaking bread, they did eat their meat or food with gladness and singleness of heart. You'd have to really stretch the text to say and be adamant, this is the Lord's Supper. Then there's Acts 20, verse 7. And upon the first day of the week, okay, here's the Lord's Day. Maybe this is something we can hang our hats on for weekly communion. When the disciples came together to break bread, Paul preached unto them ready to depart on the morrow, and continued his speech until midnight. Now, there might be plausibility here that this is the Lord's Supper, but does it mandate a frequency? No, it does not. And if it is the Lord's Supper here, and maybe those who are against preparatory services might need to take note, if it is the Lord's Supper, note how well prepared they were to receive it. Paul preached until when? Midnight, (laughs) till the bread was broken. And also an issue here is that the breaking of bread did not actually happen until after midnight, as you well know, right? After Eutychus falls out of the window is when the bread is broken. After that, Acts 20.11, when he therefore was come up again and had broken bread and eaten and talked a long while, even till break of day, so he departed. The supper then would have taken place on Monday and not the Lord's day. But I think what we confuse this with, and this is where some of the confusion is, is it is a confusion with the love feasts in Jude 12. I really do believe that this is the problem, which says that of those, um, those, those wolves, these are spots in your feasts of charity. That's not the Lord's Supper. That's the agape meal, which is distinct from the supper. It seems as if fellowship for a Christian meal and not the sacrament then is in view in Acts 20. As an aside... These fellowship meals are vital. They're not a part of worship, but they are edifying Christian fellowship, and they're a needful diet for our edification and comfort. We must think about these words. They broke bread and talked a long while with one another. That's what happened when Eutychus was uh, revived 
They broke bread and eaten and talked a long while, even till break of day. That's an encouragement for the love feast. We are to break bread and talk a long while. And this congregation creates opportunities for that. This Lord's Day, you had, uh, most of you here had broken bread and eaten with one another in between the worship services and had talked a long while. And often once a month, that is, we come and we have dinner and doctrine. We have other homes opened for fellowship meals where we can talk a long while and break bread. At the end, uh, on the Lord's Days, when we do observe the communion service, after the second service, in view of this, we break bread and talk a long while about spiritual matters. But the problem is when we confuse the two, we then start to bring the love feast into corporate worship, which is not its place. Finally, again, the last thing for breaking bread in Acts 27, when Paul is on the boat before it's shipwrecked, we read of Paul breaking bread again. Same words. In context, though, of urging men on the ship to break a 14-day fast. Acts 27.34. He says to them, I pray you to take some meat, for this is for your health. Then in the next verse, when he had thus spoken, he took bread and gave thanks to God in presence of them all. And when he had broken it, he began to eat. This is a proof right here that every time Luke speaks of breaking bread, communion is not in view. It's pretty obvious he is here having a meal. I also want to say, don't use the book of Acts to determine your liturgy, friends. It is an extraordinary time. To build practice on texts only found in Acts is dangerous. It was the time of the apostles and great miracles. No, the clear text is in uh, 1 Corinthians 11, mandated by as often as you do this. Not the description in the book of Acts, which are vague at best when it comes to the Lord's Supper. So how then do we determine as often when observing the Lord's Supper? Well, we in the Reformed churches see it as a circumstance of worship. You'll remember that from our sermon on that topic, that our confession defines circumstances like this. There are some circumstances concerning the worship of God and the government of the church common to human actions and societies, which are to be ordered, and here's key, by the light of nature and Christian prudence according to the general rules of the word, which are always to be observed. That's Confession of Faith, chapter 1, paragraph 7. So we are to use what the confession calls the general rules of the word with Christian prudence to determine the frequency. Frequency arises from things like 1 Corinthians 14.26. Let all things be done unto edifying, right? Let all things be done to build up. And let all things be done decently and in order. Those are the two key texts for circumstances in worship. And so I want to make the case, friends, because I believe this is true with my whole heart. Christ's wisdom is actually found in him not establishing a set frequency so that different congregations may observe it at different times so that elders are left to edify and do things decently and in order for their own particular congregations. Elders are to survey their flock. They are to look upon you and consider you, consider your needs, and consider other general rules of the word before they come and determine the frequency of the supper. And that is the task of every session. So, seeing the scriptures mandate no frequency, and frequency is a circumstance, let's consider our second heading, which is to consider the general rules of the word. So, let's consider some of the general rules that a session would use in determining frequency. 
There are four I want to consider. These are the important four from my perspective, anyhow, and from the Word of God, that I want to consider this afternoon. First is the place of preaching. Second is preparation for communion. Third is the practice and principle of feasts. And fourth is the principles of shepherding. So the place of preaching, the preparation for communion required, and the practice of Old Testament feasts, and fourth, the principles of shepherding. And I think if you survey these, these general rules will determine the frequency of the supper for every congregation. Now, the first that we want to consider is the place of preaching. The Lord's Supper is a sacrament, and it is dependent entirely on the Word of God. But the Word of God is not in any way dependent on the sacrament. Without the Word of God preached, the sacrament is a bare ritual. It has no meaning. It has no power. It has nothing. But the Word, friends, the Word of God can always be preached without the sacrament. The preaching of the Word must remain primary in the worship of God. Rome's error in a lot of ways, as there's just one, there are many, but Rome's error is to place the sacrament as the focal point of the service, as the high point in their liturgy. But I want to remind you of some qualities of the Word that the sacrament does not have. A person can be saved without the sacraments. The thief on the cross was never baptized. He never once took the Lord's Supper. But he heard the word preached that said Jesus Christ would come into his kingdom. And the Spirit of the Lord used that word to give him saving faith so that he cast his gaze upon Jesus. And today, now, he beholds the beatific vision from this morning, even without ever once partaking of the supper or being baptized. Man is not saved through the sacraments, but Rome tries that with her baptism. Instead, faith ordinarily comes by hearing the word of God preached. And I want you to even think of our Savior. How often did Jesus speak of the word of God? Constantly. John 5, search the scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life, and there are they which testify of me, and ye will not come to me that ye might have life. Through the word, Jesus says, we come to have eternal life. Matthew twenty two twenty nine. ye do err, not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. On the road to Emmaus and beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. On and on and on, you can talk about how the Savior spoke of the scriptures. He, during his ministry, friends, his three years on earth, he preached the word constantly, day and night, seven days a week. How often did he administer the sacrament? Once. Once in his entire ministry. Nor do we have a record of him baptizing now, do we? So how did his disciples primarily grow in grace for three years? The word of God. The word of God. Where they starved because they only took the Passover three times in Christ's ministry. No, they were not. What did Paul, so that's our Lord. Now, what did Paul say his great aim was in the ministry? Was it the sacraments? No. 1 Corinthians 1.17, For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel. I have bemoaned this with you before. In old days, a minister was called a minister of the word or a minister of the gospel. But now men want to call themselves ministers of word and sacraments. 
And that has been to the detriment of the church to elevate the sacrament to the place that the word alone must have. Let me show you in the book of Acts as well how important the apostles saw this. Why did the apostles need deacons? It is not reason that we should leave what? The word of God and serve tables, Acts 6 verse 2. And in Acts 6 4, we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Do you see where the word stands in relation to the sacrament, friends? How high and elevated it is. Because faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. But those who mandate, mandate weekly communion, men like Dr. Matheson flipped the order around. Listen to this, and it is so dangerous if you know Reformed theology. Without the word, the sacrament is merely an empty sign. That is right. But here comes the error. Without the sacrament, the word is not properly sealed and does not have its full intended effect. You almost think you're hearing a papist, friends. This man teaches at Reformation Bible College. This leads to a great error, not just weekly observance, but whenever the word is preached, the Lord's Supper must be taken. Do you see how, forgive me, how stupid this is? When we go and open air preach, the word does not have its effect unless I also administer the Lord's Supper. It's a strange environment that has been created in the modern Reformed Church, and I don't understand it at all. But this is the consistent view of those who mandate weekly communion. Michael Horton, I'm not making this up, Michael Horton wrote an article said, saying, at least weekly. Weekly's not enough. I must have it every time there is a worship service. But such sacramentalism, friends, is worthy only of Rome and not the Reformation. Beloved of God, uh, this is more of a personal exhortation for you in your own life. You need to keep the word of God central to your life above all. You must especially value the preaching of the word above all else. You know, I've shared this with a couple of folks, but in the last two weeks, two people from two separate states have called me in tears because they have no sound preaching in their city, and they literally were crying when they called me and were able to get a hold of me. They have heard some of our services, and they both eerily asked with tears, do you know if there is something like this near me? Why? Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I was staggered to think they have not heard the voice of the good shepherd in worship for so long. All they have around them are, are churches that are unbiblical. They, they don't preach the word. They're charismatic uh, in the worst kinds, prosperity teaching. And they just don't have uh, men who will just get up and preach, thus saith the Lord, out of the Bible. And they cry, friends. And I wept with them because I put myself in their place. What would that be like? Some of you have experienced it. What is it like to not have sound preaching? For your health and your growth, you need the sound preaching of the word above all else. Think of it. Could you countenance a place without sound preaching but had the Lord's Supper weekly? I think the answer to the question makes you realize the proper place of the sacrament. That brings up another difficulty with weekly communion that you must consider. The content, friends, of the sermon for the supper must have something to do with it. The sacrament requires preaching the depths of 
This is my body broken for you. And this is my blood of the New Testament shed for many for the remission of sins. We must hear of Christ's crucifixion before partaking of the supper. We must mourn our sinfulness that necessitated, when I watched the minister and the spiritual action there, breaking the bread, I must have meditated on a Savior broken for me. And when the wine is poured out, I must meditate it already in the preaching of the word, what it means that the blood of the Son of God was shed for me. Must mourn our sinfulness that necessitates the breaking of Christ. We must rejoice in the love of God in sending us Jesus. We must adore the Savior that His love to us is better than wine. And the tension here is at the same time a minister is called to do what? Preach the whole counsel of God. That means we might have sermons week after week that have little to do with the atonement. I remember the awkwardness of being in weekly communion services. The minister has maybe just preached on stewardship or laboring as unto the Lord. And then comes the supper. And I've not really meditated on the broken body and the blood. I have mostly been exhorted for 45 minutes to an hour on how to exercise godliness in my vocation or my finances. But now my affections must make a switch at the supper. And most of us are just not in the spiritual state to do it after hearing 45 to 60 minutes on a different discourse. And so God's people come to the table unprepared to take the body and blood of the Lord. Very spiritual men and women speak about their unease in doing it. Not just weekly, but even when uh, the subject matter of the sermon, whenever the Lord's Supper is, is preached, has very little to do with the um, meditation on the Lord's passion, spiritual men and women have a very hard time coming to the table. They just don't feel ready for it. But the, the preaching of, at the supper must be on the passion of Christ. What is the supper? It is the gospel in visible form. Verse 26, in it you do show the Lord's death till he come. Which means that with power, the Lord's death must be preached in order to make it intelligible. Yes, you can read the words of institution and you can give a small explanation of what is going on. But that is not preaching. The word must be preached, friends. We cannot receive the elements without hearing the preaching of Christ crucified. Think of our last communion service. We meditated on Christ saving the thief on the cross. The better part of an hour was spent meditating on the Savior's person and work that our hearts and minds would be ready to partake of his body and blood. That's a general rule in the word that mitigates against weekly communion for most churches unless they do have a man like Paul preaching till midnight. The second rule then is preparation for communion. In verse 28, we hear, let a man examine himself, or as we heard last time, test himself. I covered that in the last sermon, so I'm not going to reiterate much on it tonight. But we saw that in the Lord's Supper, we have an elevated need to prepare ourselves spiritually to meet God. But one minister who wrote an article promoting weekly communion says this, that we should always be prepared in that way for the communion service. His rhetoric is this. Which Lord's Day is it that Christians are supposed to neglect things enumerated in this answer? He means the larger catechism on preparation. Is there anything in this answer that precludes doing these things every Lord's Day? In fact, is there anything here that would not be desirous to do every Lord's Day? 
When I read that, I thought, this might just perhaps be the most unhelpful thing I've ever read on communion. He asks excellent questions, friends. I think he does. And if we were more godly, I would say no problem at all. But the reality of our experience is quite different in this fallen world, isn't it? We struggle. And our spirituality is not what it ought to be week by week. And a pastor, and a pastor wrote that, a pastor of all men should understand that. I have observed congregations with this attitude. Well, you should every Lord's Day be prepared for the supper. What do I tend to find? You tend to find people who do not want to admit their faults and their struggles. Because the pastor has put it in their minds that Christians walk, all Christians walk at a level few do. People don't want to talk about their struggles because I can't come to the Lord's table and then I feel weird when I'm over there and everybody else is at the table. The fruit of it is self-righteousness and rottenness and it's horrifyingly sealed by taking the supper unworthily. Terrible thing. The same man also wrote, it is important to understand that there is not a bit of difference between the way believers ought to prepare for the Lord's supper and the way they ought to prepare to receive God's word. There is not a bit of difference between the way the Lord's word in preaching is received and that of receiving the elements of the Lord's Supper in the communion sacrament. That is plainly and patently false. That's really all I have to say. The word of God here shows there is a difference. I covered that in the last sermon. But weekly communion advocates attempt this dodge, but it is the Bible And not me that attaches a grave warning to the Lord's Supper. Think of this. The danger of not preparing for it is great and awful, not found and attached to the word. Unexamined saints eateth and drinketh damnation to himself. Verse 29. Unexamined saints are weak and sickly and many sleep. Verse 30. Unexamined saints come together unto condemnation. Verse 34. Those are grave warnings, friends, concerning the word of God. Uh, Not the word of God, but the Lord's Supper. I just want to say, the sad truth of the matter is, few Christians even pray daily. Much less prepare and examine their hearts every week before the Sabbath day. Often Christians are are up too late on Saturday night. They haven't spent any time in prayer with the Lord. They haven't read their Bible. They haven't thought on the Lord's day. And they come into worship services utterly unprepared, and we should say, yes, you should be prepared every day. But friends, frankly, we're not. And that's just not our spiritual condition right now. It's just a hard reality. Revival will come one day, I am certain, but it has not happened yet in our society and in this place, and even in this church to a large extent. You know, often, here's what happens. They will drag out John Calvin as the great defender of weekly communion. But you know what? Calvin was a good pastor as well as theologian, and he did not institute weekly communion. Why? In 1537, John Calvin wrote to the Genevan Council of Ministers, listen to this, because the frailty of the people is still so great, there is danger that this sacred and so excellent mystery be misunderstood if it be celebrated so often. That is the heart of a pastor, friends. As a heart of a man who has a preference for weekly communion, a man who preaches seven days a week in Geneva, and he says, you know, I understand the people are not ready. They're not ready for this frequency. It was too much. Even though the people in Geneva heard preaching daily, weekly communion was too much. 
And then John Calvin, he, uh, rather, John Knox learned from Calvin and he instituted quarterly and not weekly communion in Scotland. So that's the second principle, which is preparation. Third is the practice of feasts. And this is the third general rule, the principle of the Old Testament feasts. You remember that the Passover was an Old Testament feast, and the supper replaces the Passover. You saw a link in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, and uh, on following for preparation. Purge out, therefore, the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump, as ye are unleavened. That's the feast of unleavened bread. For even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And you remember, just as the Old Testament saints were to search out leaven in the home and cast it out, we are to search out our sins and burn them when we celebrate the supper by bringing them to Christ. And we come to our New Testament feast in that way. Now, boys and girls, just in your mind, what were the two Old Testament sacraments? They were circumcision and Passover, right? How often did boys get circumcised? Easy answer, once. And how often did Israelites eat the Passover? Once a year, right? And what our confession says, and I'm not going to go into sacramentology right now, that these two sacraments were substantially the same as those in the new. That's Confession of Faith 27.5. And what those feasts illustrate is this wonderful principle that the blessing of the sacrament is not fixed to the moment they are administered. Right? That when I put the bread in my mouth and I drink from the cup, then grace is given and then it ceases. And then I, I have no more grace. In other words, friends, what you need to avoid is the error which these weekly communion and more than weekly communion folks run into, which is that uh, you need to eat the bread and wine constantly because every time you do, you get more grace magically pumped into your soul. That's Rome's view. And that's not the Reformation view. Think instead in these ways, and I want you to think in these ways when you come to the supper, that, the, the, that as I prepare my heart and I till the soil of my heart to receive Christ in the sacrament, that as my heart is well plowed, I can receive a blessing at the table that can last a lifetime, a lifetime, friends, that can carry me through to eternity. As with baptism, right, which we administer once, the benefits of the supper go on through our lifetime. Last Friday, I spent a wonderful time in Christian meditation, and I recalled the last time I was at the table. And I profited from it as I remembered the sermon, and I remembered being at the table, and in my case, administering the supper. And I profited from it spiritually as I remembered how I feasted on Christ. And so if you feel hungry and thirsty for Christ, will you, child of God, remember the last time you took bread and wine in the supper and think on what you have done? Rather than see the sacrament like junk food, see it as a rich spiritual feast. Come to it to partake of a feast of fat things, a feast of wines on the lees, of fat things full of marrow, of wines on the lees well refined. Isaiah 25, verse 6. Ask the Lord. This is a wonderful thing to pray for, boys and girls. Ask the Lord, you know, when you come to the table and you're old enough. When you come to the table, friends, ask the Lord to fatten you up spiritually on the sacrament. That's a good analogy, by the way, and why the Bible uses it. Boys and girls, in your... um, 
biology classes maybe, what is the design for fat in the human body? It is to provide nourishment for you for later. It is storage of energy for you in the human body. And you then think of the Lord's Supper in the same way, that there is a reservoir, a store of grace that is given to me, that I grow fat at the table that will carry me on for any day. One day, beloved, you need to get this theology right. One day, you may very well be kept from the table. Not because I'm not talking about disciplinary matters. You may be a shut-in, friend. You may be a shut-in, and you may not take of the supper for a very long time, and maybe you will never take the supper ever again. And you have to see that the last time you took the supper is what the Lord has given to you to keep you and nourish you on your way to Zion till you appear before him. If your theology is screwed up here, friends, the problem is you're going to say that without the sacrament, I'm going to die. Die spiritually. And so many of God's people have been kept from the sacrament in persecution. And what are we to say to them? See, it's only the rich American church that can come up with theology that's this nonsensical. But when our brethren are persecuted and are running and all they have to clutch is their Bible, they have everything they need for their sustenance. And it is folly to tell them, I would like these men to tell our persecuted brethren, oh, you are not getting the full effect of the word as you run away from the communists. If you kept in view that the supper is a feast of fat things, the Lord will use it to the very day you awake satisfied with his likeness. I also want you to note that the feasts of Israel punctuated their regular Sabbath worship. You know, week to week, they worshiped in the synagogue and not the temple, right? And it was only on the three seasonal biblical feasts when all went to Jerusalem. Exodus 23, 14, three times thou shalt keep a feast unto me in the year. And you remember those Sabbaths were called what? Uh, if you remember this from our series in uh, Luke, those were known as high Sabbaths. You remember when Jesus died, John 19, 31, the Jews therefore, because it was the preparation that the body should not remain upon the cross on the Sabbath day, for that Sabbath day was an high day. The feast days resulted in special Sabbaths distinct from the ordinary ones, and that's how we see our observation of the Lord's Supper as well. Okay, then fourth and last, there is the principle of shepherding. Scripture says to elders, Be thou diligent to know the state of thy flocks, and look well to thy herds. Proverbs 27-23 As your elders, we are called to know you and to shepherd you well. I'm sure you can say, Pastor, I can point out many of your shortcomings in this, and I say, I agree, I have shortcomings, without a doubt. But the fifth commandment, regardless, requires us to be invested in your spiritual condition, friends. To look well to you and be diligent to know your spiritual state. Acts 20.28 heightens this. Take heed, therefore, unto yourselves and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost made you overseers to feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. When a minister looks into the wine and the cup, friends, he must feel the force that Christ purchased the sheep at the table with his own blood. 
And if I, your pastor, know that you are unforgiving, and if you harbor resentment, how pricked my soul should be to pass that cup to you. Knowing that I might be handing you over to the chastening of the Lord, not for that we have dominion over your faith, but are helpers of your joy, for by faith ye stand, 2 Corinthians one twenty four. This is a principle that elders must abide by as they consider the state of their congregation. It's often so foreign to us because most pastors and elders in our context societally run churches as businesses. But having been on multiple sessions now, not just here in this church, I can tell you there are many, many ongoing issues in congregations that require careful shepherding as Calvin discovered in Geneva. Our session has had to work on marriages, on forgiveness issues, to make sure that members are reconciled and are blessed when they come to the table. And time between communions allows these issues to be resolved. We have done this in our congregation. We have done this in other congregations where we were borrowed elders, and it has been greatly blessed by the Lord. More might be said But with these four principles, preaching, preparation, feasts, and shepherding, we'll conclude with general rules applied. So with these principles, our session has determined a quarterly observance for us. Um, And this also comes from the seasonal observance, right, particularly that Israel had with the feasts. We link our practice to the feast days, and we find that to be very helpful, even though they are not mandated. Some will say that they are mandated, but I don't believe that we go so far. So to keep with these principles, our practice, as you might know, is a preparatory service, the Lord's Day prior, to aid you throughout the week in preparing for the Lord's Supper. And then on the Lord's Day that comes, it is in our communion service, our practice to meditate on the cross of Jesus Christ and then come to take the supper. Then in the afternoon, after the service, we have a Thanksgiving, after the communion service, we have a Thanksgiving service to walk, to be exhorted to walk in the grace you have received. As in Psalm 116, I will offer to thee the sacrifice of thanksgiving and will call upon the name of the Lord. And then in the evening, right, to cultivate the love feast environment, we have a time of spiritual discussion and dinner at our house. That's our practice currently and where we are as a congregation based on these general principles. Now, I praise the Lord that we are growing not only numerically but spiritually as well. And um, it seems to be a desire on the session to move in the direction over time, not anytime soon, but in the direction over time in our heritage, which is the communion season. And I want to introduce those to you now so that you might better understand them if they are implemented in times to come. They're not uh, required by the word, but are, again, a circumstance by which we might better profit from the Lord's Supper. And if you've never heard of them and you've never experienced them, they might sound strange to you. But they're just a way that the church in wisdom has sought to apply the general rules we have considered of the word to the Lord's Supper. Now, they do picture the feasts in Jerusalem that we sang of in Psalm 84.7. They go from strength to strength. Every one of them in Zion appeareth before God. Now, I just want you to think about what a beautiful picture that was in Old Testament Israel, right? It's hard to imagine anymore, but the towns were emptied, and quarterly pilgrims 
on the way to Jerusalem would stream, stream out of their towns and to the city together, going from company to company or from strength to strength as they went to keep the feast. It was a fellowship of the saints on the way to the temple until every one of them in Zion appeareth before God. And that is what the communion season attempts to capture. A seasonal celebration of the supper where many saints gather together. Neighboring churches are often coming together to hear visiting ministers come into town to preach. It's a heightened and punctuated celebration of the supper with the saints of God together. And they have often left a special imprint on the hearts and minds of God's people as the supper becomes then a feast of fat things. So what do they look like? And I hope you'll see the general principles that we have considered in their implementation. Many of us are unaccustomed with them. So I'll just lay out, this is a traditional Scottish communion season. It doesn't have to be done this way. But I want you to see the depth, the depth that comes with celebrating communion this way. So a traditional communion season lasts from Thursday to Monday. This is how it is in the Highlands. Uh, It looks something like this. Thursday before the supper is a day of humiliation. It's a corporate fast day, like the one that we recently held, that we would humble ourselves before the Lord and seek him as we prepare. So we repent of our sins, we fast, and we are in contrition, we confess our sinfulness, and we seek to cast out that leaven as before the Passover from our hearts. And this is a wonderful thing to do if you are able to take part of it. And the worship service, there will be a worship service in a communion season every night. Uh, There's a worship service designed around repentance like at our fast day. So if you've been to our fast day service, you'd see what it's like. Then Friday, so that's Thursday, then Friday is a day of examination for marks of grace in our life to encourage us. For after being humbled on Thursday, we call on the great physician to bind us up after he has broken our bones. Job 5.18 For he maketh sore and bindeth up, he woundeth, and his hands make whole. The service that night deals with marks of grace to examine and grow in, and to bring them to the Lord to help us grow in taking the supper. Then Saturday, you see it's it's ramping up to the supper. Saturday is the day of anticipation, where we meditate on the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ. As in Psalm 42, where we yearn to meet him in the Lord's Supper. It's a day to hold out the glory of his person and to inflame our desire for him. Reminding us all, his mouth is most sweet. Yea, he is altogether lovely. This is my beloved and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. You see, we are conditioning our hearts in all the ways that we must in order to come to meet with Christ. Then Sunday morning is the Lord's Supper itself. And the atonement, as I've said earlier, is the focus of the supper, of the sermon, the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, the gospel held forth, his agony and his travail for sinners like us to bring the glory of the cross to us as we then take of the Lord's body and blood. The evening service that day uh, would be evangelistic, and it's often geared towards calling the covenant children, especially to saving faith, preaching on their need to close with Christ and receive him by faith. Monday is the Thanksgiving day, and that service deals with how to respond to God for the grace we have received. And again, these are all circumstances of worship. Uh, These days are not set in stone. Some congregations have a full five days, some have two. Every congregation is different, and the capacities of each congregation is different. 
And so we also want to think about that. You know, we don't live in the highlands, and stores don't close for a whole week during a communion season. Now, this is a wonderful thing, by the way. That's a picture of what revival does, where God's people say, I will shut down this week for business because I want to go and celebrate the Lord. That's a wonderful thing. And that fact that the Lord has done such things and has still maintained those in certain parts of our our world is an astonishing thing, and it's something we should pray for. There are other encouraging features of communion seasons. Every night of the communion season, traditionally, elders make themselves available. What they do is it's an invitation to the unconverted and to the covenant youth who have expressed interest in spiritual things. The elders will come and speak to them as they, the children especially are observing all that is happening around communion. Just like at the Passover, right? The, the children were supposed to be instructed. What is the meaning of these things? And oftentimes the children will come to the elders and the elders will inquire, where is the state of your heart? Where are you with Christ? What are you dealing with? Do you know the Lord? Are you dealing with sins? And encourage them to make their preparations to come to the Lord's table and profess saving faith. Many children come to saving faith or profess it rather in communion seasons because of that. Guest ministers are often brought in to relieve the pastor of the church or assistant. In the last 18 months, you have loaned me out twice to other congregations. And this, from a pastoral perspective, greatly helps ministers with pastoral burnout, where they're not the ones who are ministering, and they who water are able to be watered themselves during a communion season. You know, we talk about pastoral burnout, and maybe there are ways that in our our history, through the general rules of the word, that we can help men, and maybe communion seasons are one of those things. An old minister, older minister in our in our denomination is just sort of astonished how uh, these things have disappeared, and then we suddenly are having all kinds of problems in terms of ministers burning out. And it strengthens the bond of Catholicity in the churches as people go strength to strength, you know, one of, if you've been to a communion season, you'll notice that visitors from other congregations often come to worship, even making it a holiday, so to speak. Whenever they hear a communion season is taking place, people will travel. Single people especially love to travel and often find spouses. There is that festival atmosphere cultivated where homes are opened as well, and hospitality is extended. Strangers, strangers, people of God from other places are in our homes. It's a rich Time. It's a beautiful picture of the Old Testament feasts, heightened and rich times of worship. What I want to say, friends, is our heritage, all that said, and maybe that'll give you an idea of what I mean when I say communion season or anybody here says it. That's a, that's, that's kind of the, the communion season in its full scope and you can scale it down however a session would like. But I just want to put that before you because, friends, our heritage as Presbyterians when it comes to communion is not weekly communion. It is communion seasons, heightened Sabbaths to spiritually feast on Christ. You know, so widespread were communion seasons in Presbyterianism that the liberal PCUSA still encouraged them in the 1916 Directory of Public Worship. The PCUSA. When I put that on a... uh, um, On a paper that I wrote for my ministry of worship professor at the seminary, all he could do is he would write, Oh, how the mighty have fallen. I just want to say, you know, in case you're wondering, we're not near to implementing communion seasons. They're not required. But I believe as we grow in applying the general rules of the word to circumstances of worship, we will grow all the more and we will truly grow to desire such fat things. There's a lot 
friends, to the supper that is neglected, which is why I've been preaching on it for so long now. But I have personally tasted and seen the Lord's goodness and fatness in the supper when the general rules of the word are applied to it. And I pray, for friends, that our souls would continue to grow in fatness until that day when the sacraments are over for us and we have that blessed, immediate vision of God in the beatific vision. May you long for that, and until then, may each communion carry you a little further to the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, Next time, Lord willing, we will consider the table, the bread, and the cup, and that will be our last sermon on the supper for a while. But until then, please rise. O Lord, our God, how wonderful is the wisdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. He has done all things well, truly, and he understands, Father, the needs of his people in every age, in every institution he has given them. So we bless you and thank you for such a precious Savior who would deign to condescend to ourselves that he would allow us to draw so near to him as in the communion. And so, Father, we pray that you would bless our our love for the Lord, that you would have us look continually back to every communion that we have partaken of, that we would understand uh, the grace that was given to us there does not cease, but uh, is a, a reservoir there for us, that even today our last communion is still a feast of fat. Father, we pray that you would help us have and maintain the primacy of the word, that this congregation and all of God's people would be known as people of the book and not people of uh, the supper first and foremost, that it would be the words of life that would be our longing uh, most of all, for it is in the word that we see the word made flesh, our Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to understand these things and help us to also bear well with one another if uh, we are all in congregations that uh, perhaps we find over time do not uh, esteem these same things in the same measure, we pray that we would still be a people who would be glad to be among the people of God. Bless this time we have had, for we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Our final singing comes from the Black Psalter. It'll be...